Good morning. Welcome to church once again. It's so great you could join us this morning. I work as an optician two days a week. It's a job that I've done for over 25 years now and it, it requires just a, a certain amount of precision. I find that people do like to see well. In fact, I've only, only ever had one person come to me and ask for a retest because, in her words, she could see everything too clearly. So she wanted me to make her vision just a little bit more blurry. Now, of course, she is the exception that proves the rule. People want their glasses to be right. They do want to see clearly. If you buy a new pair of glasses, you don't want them to be almost right. You want them to be exactly right. But the precision that is required of me to test your eyes to provide you with a new pair of glasses is actually nothing compared to the position and to the complexity of the human eye itself. Do you know that the eye is the second most complex organ in the body after the brain? Here are just a few facts about it. Your eyes are made up of over two million working parts. That's how complex they are. Yet if you damage your eye, it can heal itself remarkably quickly. It takes only about 48 hours to self-repair a scratch on your cornea. You blink five times every single second. So when you hear the phrase, in a blink of an eye, to describe something happening quickly, it's true. Because the, the eye is one of the fastest muscles in your body. A blink typically lasts only about 125 milliseconds. Your eyes are able to process 36,000 pieces of information in a single hour. The optic nerve, that part of the eye that carries the information to be processed in your brain, contains more than one million nerve fibres. Yet, it's only about two millimetres in size. It's said that your eyes can detect a candle flame at a distance of 1.7 miles away. Truly remarkable precision. Or consider your heart. Your heart is a highly efficient pump. In fact, mechanics and, and, and others cannot, and there's, I guess the specifics of the heart, they cannot be matched by even the best engineers. The heart has a 75 year life expectancy, give or take a little bit, Two. 1,500 million cycles. The output varies between 0.025 horsepower to short bursts of up to one horsepower and it weighs only 300 grams. It has got the capacity of 2,000 gallons per day and its valves operate four to five thousand times per hour. Yet it requires no maintenance or lubrication. Well, let's have a look at something even smaller. Michael Denton in his book Evolution, A Theory in Crisis writes about the complexity of a single human cell. Dr Denton describes what it would look like if it was magnified by a thousand million times until it was 12 miles in diameter. He says that it would look a little bit like a, a giant airship. On the surface you would see millions of potholes opening and closing to allow this continuous stream of stuff in and out. But when you look a little bit closer into one of those potholes, you would discover a network of immense complexity. He writes, we would see endless 
highly organized corridors and conduits branching in every direction from the perimeter of the cell. Some leading to the central memory bank in the nucleus, others to assembled plants and to assembly plants and to processing units. A huge range of products and raw materials would be shuffling along the manifold conduits in a highly organized fashion to and from all of the various assembly plants in the outer region of the cell. He goes on. It would resemble an immense automatic factory, a factory larger than a city that, and, and carrying out almost as many unique functions as all of the manufacturing activities of man on earth. However, it would also be capable of replicating its entire structure within a matter of hours. Now impressive as that sounds, it's not the full story because this is only one of an estimated 75 trillion cells in your body. And what keeps them all functioning together is a hereditary material that contains biological instructions called DNA. It is said that there is such a large amount of information on the DNA in your bodies that it, if it was all written out as a list, it would fill around 10,000 thick books or novels. So whether we reflect on the incredible design of a single cell or the human heart or, or, or the eye, we're just beginning to get a glimpse of the incomprehensible skill and wisdom of God who created everything and actually holds everything together. But even with all of this complexity, it just doesn't do justice when it comes to describing the wisdom of God. Today, as we continue to examine the, the attributes of God and, and, and what it means to fear him, let us once again turn to the place where God reveals his glory and his wisdom, which of course is God's word contained in the scriptures. In Romans 16 verse 27 we read, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And this verse sets out a non-negotiable foundation as we explore the wisdom of God and it's this. Wisdom is attributed to God alone. In fact God is so wise that he is wisdom itself. God is both all-knowing and 100% wise. See, it's very easy to get confused between wisdom and knowledge and although there of course is overlap one with the other they are not the same. Knowledge is the foundation of wisdom. So in, in human terms, it's very possible and actually not that unusual for people to have a level of understanding without wisdom. So we all know people like that, I guess, all people who maybe be, may be very knowledgeable but make very stupid decisions. And I guess we're all guilty of that to some, to a greater or lesser extent. You see, wisdom takes knowledge and then skillfully puts it to the best use in each and every situation. And Jerry Bridges' describe, description of this is actually very helpful. He says that wisdom is good judgment or the ability to develop the best course of action. In other words, wisdom is acting to achieve the right outcome. So when God acts in wisdom, 
He acts to bring about the best possible end. So what is the best outcome? What, what, what is the best possible end? Well, as Romans chapter 11 verse 36 says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, the best end, the best possible outcome of all of God's actions is his own glory. There is no greater, no higher outcome than the glory of God because there's nothing and there's, there's no one higher, no one greater than God. And it's because God has perfect knowledge. He has perfect wisdom in all circumstances, which means he never makes any mistakes. It's only God and, and God alone, as Romans chapter 11 verse 33 says, who possesses the inexhaustible depth of riches of both wisdom and knowledge. Stephen Carnick, reflecting on the wisdom of God, makes three observations. He first of all says it's very important that we distinguish between the essential wisdom and the personal wisdom of God. And what he means by essential wisdom is this quality that is God's very nature, I guess his character. He is wisdom itself. Then there's God's personal wisdom, or, or perhaps I should say wisdom that is a person, Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 1, 24 tells us that Christ, the power of God, Christ, sorry, uh, tells us Christ, the power of God and the, the wisdom of God. You see distilled into the person of Christ is, is wisdom. So as we read the stories of Jesus, we read wisdom. As we listen to the teaching of Jesus, he is teaching wisdom. As we reflect on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, wisdom is being demonstrated for us. I'm going to come back to that later, however. The second thing that Charnock emphasizes is that wisdom is not an add-on extra to God. It is his very essence. Without it, he is not God. Then thirdly, God's wisdom is transcendent and infinite. As I've already said, wisdom is inseparable from him. Therefore, all wisdom comes from him. He is perfectly wise. He knows everything about everything and puts his unlimited knowledge to the best possible use. Added to that, his wisdom is unchanging. It, it, it does not need to develop, nor does it ever disappear. His wisdom is incomprehensible and infallible, which means that that there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Proverbs 21 verse 30. And we see God's wisdom displayed all around us. In the wonder of his creation, in your own body, his wisdom is everywhere. And scripture, of course, has got a lot to say about this. So Proverbs 3.19 says, By wisdom the Lord led the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. Psalm 104 verse 24. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. It's worth remembering that the writer of these words knew nothing about the complexity of a single human cell. He's got no idea about microbiology. 
but but what they did do they understood enough to know that all of creation is God's art gallery his theater in which he displays his wisdom so the endless diversity of color of shape of smell of sound that, that that we find in creation are all proclaiming his wisdom listen he didn't have to do it this way he could have made all things just very simple very plain very boring no he wanted you to see his incredible wisdom in the beauty and the order and the complexity of everything around you so that you would humble yourself before him and fear him so that you would admire who he is and see his wisdom in all he has done that he might get all the glory. So we join with this psalmist and we declare that God's glory is above the heavens. In fact, the glory of God transcends everything. But how often do we miss it? How often do we forget to stop, to look, to wonder? Plato used an illustration in his famous and widely read dialogue, The Republic. And Plato describes men imprisoned in a dark cave. Now these prisoners were unable to turn their heads so all that they could see were the flickering shadows from a fire inside and onto the cave wall. However, in Plato's illustration between the fire and the prisoners, there were puppeteers who used puppets to cast shadows onto the wall of the cave. The, the, prisoners, the prisoners can't see the puppets so the extent of their vision and all that they know comes from these shadows. It, it was only when they were set free from the confines of the darkness that they emerged into the sunlight that they could perceive true reality. However, as long as they stayed in the cave, the shadows on the walls were all that they knew to be true. Although Plato's musing, musings were written centuries ago, they are still relevant to us today in the 21st century, perhaps like never before. We pride ourselves in our science, in our technology, our, our telescopes, our, our, and, and space exploration means that we can see further than ever before. Our microscopes and our technological breakthroughs allow us to explore the teeny weeniest little of details, the infinitesimal. We can, and we can discover things so remarkable and so majestic like, like no other generation before us. Yet with all of that we live in an age that is, that is so short-sighted that it has declared that the sum total of reality to be what is here and now. We live in a society that has cut itself off from the sacred and, em and embraced an unprecedented kind of secularism. We have chosen to live in Plato's small cave. In the 16th century, John Calvin used an illustration in his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, which makes actually a very similar point to that of Plato. He argues that nature is a massive, a glorious theatre of divine revelation. But when people walk through this theatre, they wear a blindfold. 
Calvin uses the illustration to describe the state of people who willfully choose to turn their gaze away from the obvious, from the glorious. And Calvin's point is this, we, we put blindfolds on ourselves and, and then we stumble around cursing in the dark. Yet the glory and the wisdom of God is all around us. If you would just remove the blindfold, you couldn't help but see the wisdom and the, the glory of God. You just can't miss it. And the consequence is twofold. Not only do we fail to stop and smell the flowers, but we fail to notice the glory and the wisdom of the flower maker. Speaking as a pastor who's also an optician, you need to sort your eyes out. You need to have them restored so that you can see with eyes of faith. You need to, you need spiritual correction to overcome your myopia so that you see beyond the surface of things and feast your eyes on the glory, on the wisdom of God that is just all, that's all around you. There are many times in the Bible that refers to having eyes to see. And these verses are of course referring to something that is much more than just the ordinary power of the senses. Instead is the ability to cut through the darkness and the blindness of sin to see the truth. And listen, only Jesus Christ can open eyes in that way. Only he can move, remove spiritual cataracts. Only he can bring regeneration so that the scales fall from your eyes and we perceive the truth and the wisdom that comes from God. And while God delights to display his wisdom in creation, it's not the only way that he shows us his wisdom. We also see God's wisdom displayed in just the, the constant care for us and his absolute rule over all of his creation. It's what's often described as God's providence. And there are two aspects to his providence, his care and his governing. In Psalm 104, we read about God's care over the cattle and the plants that grow. In Acts 17 verse 25 we're told about his fatherly care in the ways that he himself gives man life and breath. But God also governs his universe and he rules over every aspect of, of it. In Daniel 4 verse 35 it reminds us that he does all that he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of this earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's very clear that God's rule is universal and absolute. Because no one can act outside of God's will or against his will. And there's nothing that is too big and there's nothing that is too small to escape his governing hand. From, from the death of a single sparrow to a tiny drop of rain, nothing happens without his command. Calvin concluded that the Lord directs everything by his incomprehensible wisdom and disposes it to his own end. So we need to understand this. We need to get that God's wisdom is infinite and, and, and ours is finite. Isaiah 55 verse 8 to 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
Jay Bridges uses a helpful illustration to explain this about a family who had two sons. Joe, who was 15 years old, and Sammy, who was only three. And despite the age gap, Joe takes time to play with Sammy, wrestle with him, take him on, on walks. But one summer, Joe decides to go away on a 10-week mission trip. The boy's father actively encourages Joe to take the trip and, and helps him by raising some of the necessary funds. As the summer goes by, Sammy is missing his brother big time. Finally, one day he says to his dad, why did you send Joe away? Now his father could have answered that question in a number of different ways. He could have talked about how Joe is gaining a vision for world mission or how much he will learn by serving with other people and being part of a team. He could describe how Joe's trust in God grew when God supplied the money to go. But Sammy wouldn't understand. These concepts, though they may be obvious to us, would pass right over Sammy's little head. He had neither the experience nor the capacity to grasp what his dad is explaining. You see, when we try to comprehend the wisdom of God and all of his ways, most of the time we just don't understand. Like Sammy, we are unable to understand. I'm fully aware of the limitations of this illustration. See, the difference between a, a three-year-old understanding and ours may be great, but it's not infinite. And of course, a three-year-old will one day grow up to be able to understand with the same insight that we have. By contrast, God's wisdom is infinite and ours is finite. Producing a difference that in itself is almost, almost impossible to grasp. Yet naively we believe that we could understand if God would just explain things better. Because we don't really believe that his understanding, that his wisdom, no one can fathom. Isaiah 40 verse 28. Edward J. Young writes, The words and thoughts of God are incomprehensible to man. Even though God reveals them to man, he cannot fully understand them. To him, they are incomprehensible. And we really do need to accept that God's ways are often mysterious. And to bow before him with humble hearts, rejoicing in the fear of God and praising him with adoration and wonder at his divine wisdom. And I hope, I hope you're able to appreciate that God's wisdom is displayed in creation and in God's providence over this world. However, the height, the, the culmination of wisdom is seen in Christ Jesus' redemptive work unveiled for all of us at the cross. Colossians 2 describes how in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Ephesians 3 verse 10 and 11 Paul tells us that through the church this manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in these verses we discover the most amazing thing. The wisdom that was hidden from natural eyes and that, that not even the angels saw coming 
is a wisdom that is multifaceted, that is multicolored, that speaks of an infinite diversity, that is the extravagant, the sparkling beauty of God's wisdom perfectly displayed in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And the consequence of this great wisdom is the gathering of people from all cultures and languages and every nation and station of life into one body, the body of Christ. It's only in Christ and through his work on the cross that we see the pinnacle of God's wisdom revealed. In Christ, we see how God's wisdom reconciles justice and mercy. Let me explain it like this. I want you to imagine a courtroom with, with justice at one side and mercy on the other. And when justice presents its case, we hear how we hear how the human race was created perfectly, made in the image of God, male and female, to obey God. But just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are sinners and we have chosen to rebel against God and, and we have no excuse and, and we cannot plead ignorance to this. So we must face up to the fact that sin must be punished. The holy law of God cannot simply be ignored. Justice demands that crimes cannot be overlooked. However, when mercy speaks, questions are asked. Will all of creation be destroyed? Will the end of everything be judgment and destruction? Will Satan be victorious over every single one of us? Is there no help at all? Stephen Charnock writes, truth comes to the aid of justice and grace to the aid of mercy. But God in wisdom devised a scheme to satisfy both parties. Christ, the Son of God, atones for man. Psalm 85 verse 10 is prophetic but also beautiful. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Instead of an unrighteous mercy or a merciless justice, there is righteous mercy and merciful justice. The crucifixion of Jesus was, was the most momentous and significant event in all of history because it is there in that moment that we see God's most glorious wisdom in that he uses the acts of sinful man to carry out his own plans. This is how the disciples describe it in their prayer in Acts chapter 4 verse 27. For Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united together against Jesus your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. See, the decisions of both the Roman and the Jewish leaders was all part of God's redemptive plan. They were simply actors in, in this world's greatest drama. A drama that began before creation that didn't end at the cross or even the resurrection because 
the end is still to come through the redemption of a people for God from every tribe and language and nation of this world. And listen, it hasn't finished yet because down through the generations past, present and future, God is calling men and women and young people and children to salvation in a multitude of diverse ways and through an infinite number of circumstances to faith in Jesus. And in every single instance God's wisdom is displayed you see all that God has done in your life is an outworking of his wisdom as Christ dwells in you and you in him through his spirit the glorious wisdom of God is miraculously and incomprehensibly displayed first Corinthians 1 verse 30 it is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. And the implication of God's wisdom for your life is immense. But I just want to finish with one final thought and, and application. See, when you understand that your identity and that your security is in Christ Jesus and that he is the wisdom of God, you can be confident that even in all the ups and downs of life, God will carry out his purposes with infinite wisdom. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, we're told that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And God has control over all things, the good, the bad and, and the ugly. He causes the big things and the little things to work together for good. So your troubles are both directed and removed by the wisdom of God. But in, in order for us to properly understand what, what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8 verse 28, you need to know that Paul, what Paul means by the word good. He actually tells us in the next verse when he says that all things work together for good. Paul says it is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now most of us have our own idea what good should look like and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that for none of us, it's, we, none of us think that it's, it's trouble or, or, or heartache. <laughs> none of that qualifies as good, surely. However, the writer to Hebrews in chapter 12 verse 10 agrees with Paul. He says, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. In fact, God causes all situations and circumstances of life, even the challenging times, the painful times, the times of discipline, as well as the times of celebration, to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And this is remarkable, especially when you consider the sinfulness of your own heart. J.C. Ryle sums it up only too well. He writes, our best deeds are no more than splendid sins yet God in his immense wisdom cares enough for me and everything in my life and yours to conform us to the image of Jesus should we not be in awe and reverential fear of him in an earlier sermon in this series we looked at the greatness of God and we reflected on Isaiah 40 in it, Isaiah wrote about how God carries the waters of the oceans in, in the palm of his hands and, and how he, he measures, measures the heavens with the breadth of his hand. 
But Isaiah 40 also talks about the wisdom of God. This is my paragraph of verses 13 and 14. Who tells God what to do? Who gives him advice? Can you or I give God some direction on how to plan the future? Should I, with my limited understanding of the human eye, be giving God some ideas on how he could have improved the design of the eye? These questions, of course, are completely ridiculous. Yet how often do we want to be God's advisors? How often do we actually believe we know better than he knows? And I'm sure that there have been times in your life, just as there have been times in my life, when we have tried to tell God that he needs to do better. That circumstances need to change. There are times when, when I've even questioned God's wisdom. But we must come to the understanding that the greatness, that the greatest wisdom that we could ever have is to acknowledge how wise and mysterious God's ways really are. Paul understood this when he wrote Romans chapter 11 verse 33. He says, oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God is infinite in his wisdom. He has displayed it through his creation, his providence, and most clearly in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And you are without excuse. You have every reason to put your trust in him, even in the times when you don't understand what he's doing. You submit yourself to his desires, to his word, and you trust him. His timing is best. His will is perfect and all his ways are just. In other words, God really does know what is best for you. So be content to wait on him. Knowing that God has done all things well. And he will do all things well. You must praise him as the only wise God. For that is what he alone deserves. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you. And we commit these words, Lord, to our hearts. Lord, we pray, Father, as we have just reflected on your wisdom. Lord, may it not just be something that we think about and then throw aside. But may we ponder your word. May we dig deep into your scriptures. May we bow before you in reverential awe and fear and wonder. For you're worthy. You alone are worthy of all the praise and all the glory and all the honour. So Lord, by your spirit, fill us afresh, equip us. Lord, we need your help. To worship you as we should. To honour you as you deserve. To bow before your wisdom. And give you praise. Help us Lord God. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us. God bless you this week. May you know God's blessing. May you follow his wisdom. May you grow closer to him in all that you do. Amen.